a Sunday morning at 3am and I was supposed to be picking somebody up in a taxi down on the quayside and there's another taxi driver there and I was just starting to talk to him and I was stood by his door and I just felt I'm going to pass out here. I'm going to, like, knew I was going to go down on my knees, which I literally did. And after that, it's like, well, he couldn't get out of the car. <laughs> I was blocking him. He sort of rang for help and everything else. Next, I remembered was literally sitting propped at the back of the car. And then literally getting transferred from the general across to the Freeman, which was across the road from where I lived. And that had taken six hours at that point. I arrived at the Freeman. They didn't know my name and didn't know what had happened to me. By that time, total right side of my body was paralysed. Hadn't given me a jab or anything, which, you know, in hindsight, you know, they've got to do the scan to work it out. I was in the hospital for a month. Kept going along getting those tests and basically they did a scan and they could see the chambers of the heart and little bubbles were going through. There was a little hole between. So I've had that since birth. Nobody's ever found that. So that must have been there. So little bubble going through. Well, you're on the cusp. If you were younger, we'd say we'd fix it. If you're older, we wouldn't. So it's your choice. So then, yeah, just plug the hole. Pick yourself up and dust yourself off and try and plod on. So again, just try the best, talk to people learn from their experiences. Hello, I'm Mark Goodyear. Welcome to Stroke Stories, the podcast that seeks out and hears from stroke survivors. People of working age who've had a stroke are two to three times more likely to be unemployed eight years after their stroke, and around one in six stroke survivors experience a loss of income after stroke. In this episode, we'll hear from Michael Cox from Newburn who suffered a stroke at the age of 51. I worked literally up till 50, so very busy. Three kids, so very active, and I was a scout leader. Took early retirement just before my 50th birthday. Literally about a year off. Wasn't exactly looking for another job, but there wasn't any anyway, because I was too old. And I started taxi driving, and literally I did three months, and just keeled over with my stroke. It was a Sunday morning at 3 a.m. and I was supposed to be picking somebody up in a taxi down on the quayside. And there's another taxi driver there and I was just starting to talk to him. And I was stood by his door and I just felt, I'm gonna pass out here. I'm gonna, like, knew I was gonna go down on my knees, which I literally did. And after that, it's like, well, he couldn't get out of the car. <laughs> I was blocking him. He sort of rang for help and everything else. Next, I remembered was literally sitting propped at the back of the car. A policeman talked to me, who looked about 15, saying, right, well, when was the last time you had a drink? And I was, I've got car keys in my hand. And I said, I'm driving a taxi. And I was thinking in my head, when was the last time I had a drink? Right, six months ago. You know, literally, but... To me, I was talking clearly, but to them, they couldn't understand what you were talking about. And then so after that, I remember being laid on the floor with a lady holding my head, because apparently I had fitted, and they had me sort of recovery position, and I was laid on my car keys and stuff in my pocket, and it was hurting like hell, and I was trying to get moved. 
it's no use because I lay still. Then ambulance arrived, same questions. When was the last time you had a drink, etc. Trying to explain things, taxis just sat there. You know. All the way to the, the general, as it was. And then I was sat in a room, not even a side ward, it was big. And I was just sat in a chair. Guess, couldn't remember everything that was going on. Because I know with, it's got to work out whether it's a clot or a bleed. So they need a scan to tell. And as a half have a memory of being propped, whether I was getting a scan or whether that was a, a later date, because I remember that in the hospital. So I was literally sat in a room, fully functioning at that point until I needed to go to the toilet and sitting on a commode, being able to use my right hand. And then literally getting transferred from the general across to the freeman, which was across the road from where I lived. And that had taken six hours at that point. I arrived at the freeman. They didn't know my name and didn't know what had happened to me. By that time, total right side of my body was paralysed. Hadn't given me a jab or anything, which, you know, in hindsight, you know, they got to do the scan to work it out. I was in the hospital for a month and I saw people, well, a lot of people worse off than me. Some of them were never getting out of bed again, couldn't feed themselves. People were coming in, having had the jab and walking home after three days. So, and then eventually I had to learn to walk again and then some speech therapy and, you know, I always remember him saying, right, you're gonna have a walk, just once a day. And I'm thinking, I wanna do more than that. I wanna get up and get away, you know. And a nurse on either side thinking, God, I can't do this. Trying, literally learning to walk again, putting one foot in front of the other. And then eventually having a bit of a Zimmer frame and everything and getting mobility back in your hands, etc. Michael's stroke was a clot that split in two and affected both sides of his brain. I was on warfarin to start with. Kept going along getting those tests and basically they did a scan and they could see the chambers of the heart and little bubbles were going through. There's a little hole between. So I've had that since birth. Nobody's ever found that. So that must have been there. So little bubble going through. Well, you're on the cusp. If you were younger, we'd say we'd fix it. If you're older, we wouldn't. So it's your choice. So then, yeah, just plug the hole. So laid there, in through the groin, go in, like little umbrella jobs. So I don't need warfarin anymore, but I have aspirin, which is now clopidogrel. So I guess that's all working fine. With all the therapy of nurses helping me walk, once I reached the point where I could walk up and down the stairs a bit, then they were letting me out. And I had people came to the house to say, right, well, yeah, supervised walk around the block, and that's about it and then gradually build up. I had somebody came to the house and the speech came back fairly quickly and, you know, they said, well, you're about out of par now, you know, we don't need to see you anymore. A lot of it was left to ourselves then. Once I knew I could walk a bit and I could talk a bit and as somebody was home and wash your hands every year almost type of thing. Never really had to see the doctor or anything. Basically after that, it was no contact. The only physio was them trying to get me to walk again. And then after that, it was right, just start walking around the block. I'd 
wasn't sort of like struggling to get out of bed or anything like that, so I didn't need any physio as such. Michael's stroke brought a new set of challenges to him and his family. Well, there's always the worry because, you know, suddenly you're in a position of, you haven't got an income anymore. At that point, the, in about 2000, the mother-in-law moved up to live with us. So we had her living with us for 17 years. So we'd extended the property, so we had extra mortgages and loans and everything. So we had a lot of debt and still three kids at school. Insurance was, if I dropped dead, I was fine. But you know, for anything else, you know, we, we weren't covered. The wife couldn't work at that point. She'd had dental surgery and they screwed her face up. So left her in pain every minute of every day for the rest of her life. So no income from her. And then even me just doing the taxi driving, that, that was shot. We literally sold up the house and got as much as we could. We looked for somewhere near the schools for the kids to rent. So we were paying more in rent than we had been in mortgage. And we literally paid the guy two years up front just so we were secure and that was it. Renting property since, unable to really get a job. And she and the wife's in the same position, so we just don't bounce off each other. You know, it's not like one's got the income and keeping us going. So financially, we've just been struggling for the last 17 years. We're alive and kicking, that's it. Uh, I still managed to go and do scouting. Michael also took the opportunity to visit Active Stroke Northeast. It must have been one of the people that came to the house when I first got out of hospital, and they recommended this because I remember somebody bringing me here on my first visit, and so it was just the swimming, and I stopped into there, and they've been coming here ever since. I went to the gym session one night, but to be honest, I was going to the gym near the house. So it was more of a hassle getting the bus to get down here and then get back. Because usually in the afternoon, you you dip, your batteries run out. You know, it's hard to explain to people that at a certain point of day, it's like Duracell Bunny, your batteries have just shot. And it's weird, weird effect, you know, you're really tired and that's it. And it doesn't matter how much exercise you do, that doesn't improve. You know, you can't improve on that stamina. There's a certain level. That's one of the drawbacks, but you get around it. As I say, I go out to scouts on Monday night and I'm thinking, oh, I'm really going now. I'd rather just sit at home and do nothing. You know, you have to force yourself to get out and do something. It's satisfying doing it for other people. Michael's stroke has stopped him from returning to work and that alone has proved to be a major challenge in his recovery. Still to come on Stroke Stories, Michael talking about the psychological impact of his stroke. I always find one-to-one conversations are fine. I've got anxiety if, if I had to go and like say ring the bank or, or wherever else, I'll keep putting off, picking the phone up and ringing. And then once it's over, you think, well, what well, do you need to worry about and stuff like that. And he believes that talking is important for a stroke survivor. Yeah, get in touch with people like, you know, the sessions here. People that listen to you, they're welcoming. The main thing is find somebody to talk to. Let's hear how Michael's stroke affected his vision. I'm partially sighted. So when the doctor's in there in the hospital and said, right, doing this eye test, see when you can see my fingers, yes, then no, 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 yes, yeah. 
and if that doesn't come back within a few days, it's gone. They explain how things, almost like a blackboard, that's knackered there, so it rewrites somewhere else, so like your brain's working. But with the vision, it's slightly different. There's not really a nice clear board to redo it. So my eyes would work perfectly fine in somebody else. It's just that signal to certain bits. Michael found that it was only his close family that stuck by him. Apart from the wife and the kids and mother-in-law up here, there wasn't really anybody family-wise. Uh, my mum and dad were in Darlington. Interestingly, my dad wasn't really... I think they'd been on holiday when it happened, but even when they come back, he wasn't too bothered about coming up. And my mum was a bit like, so probably under the thumb with him. It's just their generation. Uh, who eventually, they sort of said, well, yeah. she was saying, they've got to go up and see him. Nobody else could believe that they just wouldn't come up and visit. But they can't do a lot while you're in the hospital. And my wife came, the kids came, and eventually when I could walk a bit, he wandered out in the cafe in the hospital and then just get back home and crack on with it. Thank you, lucky stars, that you can get up and do stuff. Because some of the guys, I said, there was an older guy, wasn't going to get out of bed again. His wife had to feed him. Another one who's a keen cyclist, he'd been working on his bike and then suddenly he just had black and white vision and, and couldn't see his hand in front of him type of thing. And that was it. You know, it just affects so many different people. When I was in and out of the hospital, the, the old checkups, people that running marathons, proper, proper gymnasts, and it just happens. Active Stroke Northeast has given Michael the chance to meet other stroke survivors. I talked to the ones in the swimming pool on a Tuesday, so, and then a few of us go and have a coffee afterwards, so a little bit of social. I tend to get in and do my sauna, and then get in, do a few lens, chat to a few people, then go back in the sauna, then that's it, chat in the pub afterwards for a coffee. I know they do the odd things, they do sponsored walk and stuff like that to raise money. I think deep down I'm fairly well the same, as I say, happy to be around, but then, as I say, it's frustrating when you can't earn money. I've fortunately got my pension from work, but then the wife's not getting anything, and with her pension they keep moving the ages, so we've got years and years to go before she gets anything. I probably gained, got to about 90, 95% of myself back, and there's still times when, you know, you're trying to write and you're trying to hold a pen and stuff like this. And the eyesight's the worst one because it all, you know, you balance sometimes. If I'm stood and I'll turn fast, it's just like, ooh. It was almost like motion sickness on a boat. You know, that was the easiest way to describe it. As, you know, I can probably see clearer at night because you don't tend to miss anything. Bear in mind, yeah, I can see so much anyway. And, yeah, you know, see better than the wife and everything else. And it's just that little bit when you think, mm, you can just miss a little bit. If I do anything on the keyboard, when that's closer, I start off with a cue. By the time I get to the, about the why, I can't see the cue. You know, they say about reading a book, you know, by the time I got across the page, I couldn't see where I started. I went to sessions with the, sort of the blind society in town, and they, they gave me cardboard with like lines cut out so you can move it down like this and discuss the various tools for people who are worse eye problems than me. You know, like pulling your water in, sensors, you name it. 
I do find that, as I say, close-up work. If I can pour two cups of tea there, and then, you know, do something with that one, then I just totally lose where that one is. And so I've had a lot of spills. And even just carrying a cup upstairs to the wife, you know, there's times when that's, that's gone. When I first started, it would be like nine times out of 10, I'll guarantee I would spill it. Now it's one or two, and it's not major, but it's a bit. So it's just some sort of muscle controls. I do archery, which is a bit weird, because <laughs> you'll have all these targets across there, and I'm looking at that one, and I can't see any of them. Sometimes I think it is, you know, the muscles flinch or whatever else, but generally all the controls are okay. I always find one-to-one -one conversations are fine. I've got anxiety if, if I had to go and, like, say, ring the bank up or wherever else, I'll keep putting off, picking the phone up and ringing. And then once it's over, you think, well, well, I didn't need to worry about and stuff like that. But just actually getting there and speaking to somebody, like a cold call, is almost being prepared. Yeah, come in, yeah, yeah, it's fine doing this. People you know, it's fine. If there's more than one conversation going off, especially, say, in the pub, you know, the noise levels are going around, it's difficult to focus on what we're talking about. Yes. Oh, yes. I can hear them, I can hear them, and it's, it's hard to sort of filter out their conversations. I find that with, there's one guy in particular, if if the schools are off, he won't come because the noise levels are so, so much higher, and there's times when we've had to share the pool because the other one was out of action, and you just can't cope with the noise levels, which is true, you know, the, the noise just is a bind. The more lots of chatter going on. One thing that affects me, we, it's weird, is like nail varnish remover or perfumes. If the wife starts nail varnish, within seconds, I've got a headache. I don't know what it triggers, <laughs> but it does trigger something. And here's Michael's advice for stroke survivors. I don't know how much support is out there nowadays, but yeah, get in touch with people like, you know, all the sessions here. People that listen to you, they're welcoming. The main thing is find somebody to talk to, put your heart out there type of thing, you know. People have been through it, so they know what you're talking about. You're not alone. And that's the only way to get on and, you know, pick yourself up and dust yourself off and try and plod on. So, again, just try the best, talk to people, learn from their experiences. Michael has had a difficult time since suffering his stroke. He's been unable to return to work, but continues to keep himself busy at Active Stroke Northeast and with his local scout group. Coming up on the next episode of Stroke Stories. I was going about my bar class and in a side plank and my right leg just started to feel really strange, a bit numb, really faint pins and needles, a little bit like, you know, when you've been sitting on your heels or something and your leg kind of goes to sleep, but the tingling seemed quite far away. So it bothered me enough to get out of the position and I just sat there on the floor. Please don't forget to subscribe to the podcast and rate and comment on each episode. It'll help us spread the word. And if you are or you know of a stroke survivor and have a story to share, please get in touch. Our Twitter and Instagram DMs are always open. The Stroke Stories podcast was produced by Aidan Judd. I'm Mark Goodyear. Thank you for listening. Listener.